Let's go to God's Word this morning, uh, back to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Uh, we're about to come to the end of our teaching on, uh, Jesus' teaching on the Beatitudes. And we said so far that these are attitudes or mindsets or characteristics of someone uh, who has entered the kingdom of God, someone who's saved. And while these mindsets are different, while these attitudes are different from one another, uh, they all come in one bundle, okay? Understand that. Uh, the, the, even though they're different, they come in a bundle, kind of like the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruits of the Spirit, it's the fruit of the Spirit, okay? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, temperance, those kind of things comes in a bundle, okay? And so the same thing goes for these Beatitudes. They all come together, okay? And we notice that, you, we've noticed that each one of these Beatitudes begins with the word blessed. And that means it's an inner satisfaction. It means it's a sufficiency that does not depend on outward circumstances for our joy, for our happiness. And so let's read again verses 1 through uh, 8 this morning. Then we get to the one we're going to look at, verse 9 this morning. The Word of God says this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to a mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, or the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And now we come to our text this morning. Verse 9, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons or children of God. So satisfied sufficient are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Now, when Jesus made this statement, like the previous seven statements, it caught those listeners by surprise. Because the Jews that were living at that time, listening to Jesus teach, they expected the Messiah to come. They were looking for the Messiah. But they thought that when the Messiah came, he was coming to wage war against their enemies. See, the Jews throughout their history had been oppressed people. They had been in bondage to the Egyptians. They had been in bondage to the Babylonians. They had been in bondage to the Assyrians, to the Philistines. It was like a repeated cycle of being under someone's thumb, so to speak. And at the present time when Jesus was teaching this, they were in bondage under Roman authority. And one of the last things they expected to hear from the Messiah was to be a Messiah that had come to make peace. See, they were looking for a material, not a materialist, but a militaristic Messiah, militaristic Messiah. Someone that was going to come in, someone that was going to wage war, someone that was going to take charge, and someone that was going to deliver them from their enemies. On the day 
that Jesus came and he rode on a donkey. Palm Sunday. It was very significant that he rode on a donkey that day. Because in biblical times, if a king came riding into your town on a donkey or a colt, it meant that he had come in peace. But if he came on a horse, it meant he had come to conquer, to wage war. And so we see Jesus coming into Jerusalem that day on a donkey. Because why did Jesus come? Jesus came because he was the Prince of Peace. And so this morning, as we look at this beatitude, when he says, blessed are the peacemakers, I want us to see this morning the meaning of peace. I want us to see the maker of peace. I want us to see the ministry of peace and then the maintenance of peace this morning, okay? So let's look at this, these four things this morning. Let's first and foremost look at what the meaning of peace is when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Because if we're to be peacemakers, guess what? We need to know what peace really is. Because many people, when they think of peace, they immediately say that peace is the absence of war. They say that peace is the absence of turmoil. And while that is true, when the Bible talks about peace, it is much more than that. As a matter of fact, when we see that word peacemaker, and I've got this up here. Let's look at this for a second because the New Testament is written in Greek. That word peace, and I'm not going to try to butcher this word this morning. I tried earlier in the early service and I didn't do a good job of this, but there it is. Okay. Peace means quietness. It means rest. It means well-being. It means something that is healthy, something that has harmony. It is also the restoration of something that is fractured. Now, Jesus says that his children are going to be known as peacemakers. And that word maker means to construct something. It means to labor for something. It means to make a path for something or to cause something to happen. And let's say this up front. Peacemaking is not avoiding things or appeasing people. Okay? Peacemaking is not peace at any price. Okay? Because you should never seek peace at the expense of truth or Sin. You understand that? You should never seek peace at the expense of truth or of sin. So we don't sacrifice the truth in order to make peace with people. We don't put out or ignore sin to make peace with people. Because peace and righteousness or truth, it goes together. Illustration. If a couple is living together and they are not married, okay? We don't sacrifice the truth that says you are living in adultery so that they will feel comfortable in their sin. Does that make any sense? You understand that? 
We don't sacrifice truth and we don't sacrifice sin at the expense of peace. And so that's what peace is. Peace means this stuff right here that we talked about here. But you've also got the maker of peace. And who is the maker of peace? Because where does peace come from? Well, I would say this. Peace begins with God. And we've heard the saying that says it like this, and I'm not going to try to mix this up, that says, N-O, God, no God, N-O, peace, no peace, right? If there's no God, there can be no peace. But then we would say, K-N-O-W, if you know God, then K-N-O-W, then you would know peace. Why? Because God is the source. He's the maker of all peace. Now, listen, we got to understand something. That when you were born in this world, as cute and cuddly as you were, some of us not cuter than others, But when we were born in this world, we were born with a spiritual sickness. A spiritual disease called sin. We were separated, we were fractured in our relationship with God. As a matter of fact, Paul says in Ephesians 2 and 3 that we were by our very nature, listen to this, we were by our very nature children of wrath. When we were born because of sin. He would say in Romans 2, 5, and 6, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteousness and judgment of God. Listen, who will render to each person according to his deeds. Do you understand this? Listen, it's so crucial for us to understand this because we live in a time of society where we, people want to hear God loves you just the way you are. But that's not, God loves us. Understand that. But there's a difference in love. Let me, let me explain like this. Listen, I love my family. I love my aunts, I love my uncles. But it's not the same kind of love I have for my wife. God loves the world. But it's not the same kind of love he has for his children. And we need to understand that every single one of us in here, listen, you're on one of two sides. There's no neutrality. There is not a spiritual Switzerland, okay, so to speak. You are either at peace with God or you are hostile toward God. Every one of us. You're in one or two families. You're in the family of God or you're in the family of the devil. Now, people don't, don't want to hear that, but it's the truth. And we don't compromise the truth to make people feel good about themselves. So we were all born in the kingdom of darkness, 
Paul says that when we were born, we were separated, we were excluded, we were strangers, we were hopeless, we were without God. All of that in Ephesians chapter 2. That's how he describes us before Christ. He says we were enemies of God. And understand this, that chasm that we had between us and God, we could not build that bridge ourselves. Couldn't do it. But Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ built that bridge with three nails and two pieces of wood on the cross. How do we know that? Paul says in Ephesians 2.13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now don't miss this in verse 14. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace. Jesus Christ is the only reason, he's the only way you can be at peace with God. You can't be at peace with God through Buddha. You can't be at peace with God through Muhammad. You can't be at peace with God through Joseph Smith. You can't be at peace with God through anyone except Jesus Christ. And so we see that peace is not a particular place. It's not a product we can buy. It's not something we can inject into our body. Peace is a person, and that person is Jesus Christ himself. Now, Romans 5 and 1 explains it. Therefore, being, having been justified by faith, guess what? We have peace with God. In other words, this is objective peace. That when we are saved, you know what happens? God is no longer hostile toward us. We're now at peace with God. And if you're saved this morning, listen, God is not against you. He's for you. No matter what's going on in your life, God is for you. You are at peace with God because of Jesus Christ. Now listen, I, 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 I know there's a difference between peace with God and peace of God. See, you can be at peace with God and not have the peace of God. I'm going to explain it in just a second. But you cannot have the peace of God without being at peace with God. What's the difference, you may say? Well, peace with God is objective. It's based on our justification. It's based on facts. Peace of God is different because it's subjective. It's based on the fact that we would pray about everything, don't worry about anything, Think about the right things. So you can be a child of God this morning. Now, there's, there's, there's a good chance there's people in here that are Christians. They're at peace with God, but yet they are in turmoil on the inside. There's, there's, a, there's a battle going on. You're at peace with God, but you don't have the peace of God. Why? Because peace of God is subjective. It's based on you doing certain things. If you keep your mind on Jesus, Isaiah 29 says, he will keep you in perfect peace. 
If you don't keep your mind on Jesus, guess what? You're not going to be at peace. You're going to be worried. You're going to be stressed out. And so we see that the peace of God is based on our mind setting on him, thinking about the right things, praying about everything, not worrying about anything. That's where peace comes from. Peace comes from God. Now let's look at the ministry of peace. So we see the meaning of peace, what, me, what peace means. We see the maker of peace, it's God. God is the only one that can give us peace. He's the source of all peace. And we see the ministry of peace this morning. See, Scripture tells us in Ephesians 5 and 1 that therefore we're to be imitators of God as beloved children. In other words, we're to mimic our Father, act just like our Father. And we've talked about this in the last few weeks. We said this, if God is love, then his children should be loving. If God is merciful, then his children should show mercy. If God is a God of peace, and there's five times in the NASB that he's referred to as the God of peace, if God is a God of peace, then guess what? His children should be children of peace. And so since God has made peace with us through Christ Jesus, we must be peacemakers. Now let me give you some scripture this morning for this, okay? I, I may not have a lot of great things of, and, 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 and cute things to say, but we're going to get some scripture today. So that way we leave this place, we can at least say we heard the word of the Lord, okay? In Genesis 13 and 8, Abraham was a peacemaker. The Bible says that Abraham's flocks and Lot's flocks got so big that they just could not get alone. And these were family people. And this family, these two families, they could not get along. So you think your family's the only one that can't get along? No. Ever since there's been families, there's been some conflict. Okay? And so what does Abraham do? Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. In other words, Abraham said, there's no sense in us fighting. So Abraham was a peacemaker. Jesus says this in Mark 9 and 50, that we as his children, we are to be at peace one with another. Understand that. We're to be at peace one with another. Romans 12, 18, the Bible says that we, if it's possible, so far as it depends on you, you are to be at peace with all men. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, the Bible says this. Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace. You understand, God's children are to be peacemakers. Paul admonishes Timothy in 1 Timothy 2 and 11. He says this, excuse me, 2, 2, he says this. So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. In other words, Paul says, Timothy, I want you to live a tranquil and quiet life in godliness and in dignity. And he would say to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 11, you want a goal? Here's your goal here this year. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life 
and to attend to your own business and to work with your hands just as we commanded you. So understand this. Tranquil, what does tranquil mean? It means needless commotion. It means needless disturbances. It means to live a life that is steady. Illustration. Now when I fly, and if you've ever flown, I prefer the non-turbulent flights. Right? And so what that pilot would do, unless you've got an early morning flight, and the reason why the early morning flights are like cheaper is because it's like the guinea pig flight. <laughs> That's what it is. They don't know where the turbulence is. And so what happens is this. Somebody will make that flight, and they will report back to the other guys that are about to come through, hey, there's turbulence at this altitude, at this area. You may want to avoid that. Okay? Stay with me. And at my age, I just like a life that is quiet, that is steady, and that is stable. I'm not really big on surprises at my age. If somebody says to me, I got a surprise for you, my face may be smiling, but on the inside, I'm saying, I wish it wasn't. Oh, it may be good, but it also may be bad. You understand? I would say this, listen, if you meet a troublemaker in the morning, You've met a troublemaker. But if you meet a troublemaker all day, you're probably the troublemaker. Right? You're probably the one that stirs it up. You understand what I'm saying here? I'm saying that as God's children, we're to make it our ambition to lead a quiet life, mind our own business, listen, Mind our own business and attend to our own work with our own hands. See, he doesn't say blessed are the troublemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. No, he says, he doesn't say blessed are the instigators because troublemaking and instigating is not a gift of the Spirit. Okay, peace is though, fruit of the Spirit. And so he says here, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, 1 Thessalonians 4.11 again, attend your own business, work with your own hands, just as we have commanded you. Now again, I said unnecessary, unnecessary things. Because there's times in your life when you've got to take a stand. And it's going to rock the boat. Okay? When it has to do with sin, you take a stand. It may rock the boat, but guess what? You've got to stand on God's word and stand with Jesus Christ. If it's the truth, you've got to take a stand no matter what it may cause. 
You've got to take a stand. That's why it's necessary. Now, there's also unnecessary things that a lot of times we want to get into other people's business about. What is unnecessary things? It's things like your personal convictions. It's things like your opinions. And if it's your personal conviction, if it's your opinion, I would say this, mind your own business. Now, y'all ain't going to shout me down. That's fine. I don't care. But we need to hear this. In Romans 16, verse 17, Paul urges us to keep an eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned. And what does he say about it? He says, turn away from them. He says, people that come into your life that's always, always in trouble. Y'all know those people we're talking about. Those people on Facebook, they're always having some issues. Every day of their life, they've got a battle to fight. Paul says, and, and there's a good reason why you can, un, not, you don't have to unfriend them. You realize this, you can hide them and they don't know they're hid. Some of you didn't know that, did you? You just simply say, I'm going to hide this person. I'm gonna still, they're going to still think I'm, we're friends, but I'm going to hide them. Because my 50-something-year-old mind don't have time for it. I don't have time for your needless commotions and your needless, again, I said needless, unnecessary battles. Paul would say in Titus 3, 9, and 10, he would say, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strive and disputes about the law. For why? For they are unprofitable and they are worthless. And he says this, verse 10, he says, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. In other words, if someone is causing division in the body of Christ, factious, not over, not over black and white things, understand this, not over things that are clearly in Scripture. I'm talking about personal conviction, personal opinion. He says if someone is causing factions, he says we are to reject them after warning them first and the second time, then you reject them. Romans 14, 19 and 20, Paul says this, So then we pursue things which make for peace, and building one another up. We are to pursue the things that make for peace between each other and for building one another up. Then look what he says, verse 20 here. And let me kind of do a little digging here. He says, do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. Now let me explain that. In Romans 14... There's an issue going on with the body of Christ as far, there, as, as far as what you can eat and what you can drink. Okay? Some thought it was fine to eat pork. Others who were more strict and had a weaker conscience said, we can't eat that. The law of Moses says we can't do those things. 
And so what was happening, it was causing a division in the church. And God had already told us through Peter's dream in Acts chapter 10, what God has cleaned, you can't call unclean. God had already said through his apostles, I've already done away with the dietary law. The dietary law was fulfilled in Christ. It's over with. But you still had those that were weak in their faith, conscience, so to speak, that they could not eat a ham sandwich, so to speak. Can't do it. I ain't talking about me. You know I can do it. Look at my waist. And what he is saying is, if you see a brother that's eating something that you think is unclean, he says you don't destroy or you don't tear down the work of God for the sake of that food. It is not worth it. See, we don't all agree on everything in here. We just don't. Because if you go to a church that everybody dresses alike, everybody thinks alike, you need to hit the door because you're not in a church, you're in a cult. I'm not talking about clear things that are black and white. I'm talking about personal convictions. Things that you think it's okay because your conscience says there's nothing wrong with this, but somebody else's conscience may say there is something wrong with that. Why would you destroy the work of God for the sake of your personal conviction? Why would you do that? Why? Do you realize that a lot of churches, when they split, it's not usually over some kind of major doctrinal issue. It's usually something that is dumb. Usually something that's dumb. It's usually whether or not we're going to have carpet or no carpet. Right? When we first remodeled this church, right after I first became pastor a couple years later, we, we decided we was going to remodel the church, and we did. And then there was this big issue. Are we going to have pews or chairs? Oh, my goodness. Pews or chairs? What's it going to be? Well, my thought was this. I don't sit down most church anyway, so you can have a chair if you want to. You can have a pew, but I am not tearing down the work of God for something that does not matter spiritually, eternally. And I hope this is making sense this morning because a lot of the things that we cause division over is because of a personal preference and not scriptural things. But as God's people, we are called to be ministers of peace. And at times that means that 
I'm putting up with you. You're putting up with me. We're putting up with each other. And we're saying, you know what? I don't necessarily like that, but there's no scripture against it, so I'm just going to be a minister of peace. And I think one translation says it like this, and this is, what, this is one of my scriptures that I live by. Romans 11, I don't even have this up there, but it's a New Living Translation, I think, says in Romans 11, 22, it says this, whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. And there's some things that you think's wrong that you can't do it. You don't have no scripture to back it up. You just don't feel comfortable doing it. And you know what I would say to you? If that's what you think, keep it between yourself and God. Because every single one of us will have to stand and give an account for what we have done. And if it's wrong, guess what? God will judge it wrong. He'll say, no, this is wrong. I ain't saying he'll judge it wrongly. I'm just saying he will say this was wrong. But God will judge everything right. And so as Christians, as God's children, we are all to be ministers of peace. And that leads me to my fourth point. I think my fourth point. I'm, I'm lost here. Fourth point here. Yes. I call this the maintenance of peace. The maintenance of peace. Understand this. If you're a peacemaker, maker, that means you've got to give some effort. Right? If you make something, you've got to put forth some kind of work at this. Do you realize that when you buy a home, you just can't buy a home and sit there and say, I don't ever have to do any maintenance to it. Even if you buy that home brand new, guess what? You still have to do maintenance work to that house. Even if you buy a brand new car, guess what? You better do some maintenance work on that car if it's going to last. Even if you get married. And you got the goo-goo eyes and the butterflies. You better do some maintenance on that marriage because it's just not going to run smoothly by itself. It's not. And that's the same thing with our relationships. Listen, there's two reasons why we're going to have to maintain peace. And two reasons why peace does not always happen. The first one is sin. The second one is selfishness. Now, the Bible says in Isaiah, it says, there is no peace for the wicked. In other words, if you live in sin, if you sin, guess what? You cannot have peace in your sin. You can't. And the second one is selfishness, which is really, a result, is really derived from sin anyway. But let's talk about these two areas first of all. As a child of God, as a peacemaker, my first priority is to be a, a, a priest to build bridges between lost people and God. The most important peace you can promote is the peace between God and man found through Jesus Christ and his supreme and sufficient sacrifice on the cross. 
And so the, 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 the greatest effort we could have at becoming peacemakers is to share the gospel with people, is to let them know that there is a Savior, Jesus Christ, that died for them, that they are separated from God, that they're enemies of God, but yet they don't have to stay that way because Jesus Christ has paved the way for them to have peace with God. That's the greatest thing you could, you could offer as far as being a peacemaker. And you know what? You know what's going to heal this country more than anything? It's not a politician. It's people getting saved. It's people getting right with God. Change doesn't happen from Washington down here. Change happens in a local community. In other words, a family gets saved. That church gets right with God. And when churches get right with God, you know what happens in the community? Righteousness starts prevailing. And when righteousness prevails in those communities, you know what happens in counties? Righteousness starts prevailing. And so it goes on and on and on and on until a nation fears God and serves Him. That's how peace is attained is through that process. But secondly is this. It's reconciliation with others. Psalms 34 and 14 says, Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 and 14 says, That we're to pursue peace with all men. If you pursue something, guess what? You've got to diligently work at it. Why? Because I would say this, where there are two people gathered together, before long there's going to be some conflict. There's going to be some conflict. You ever, you ever thought about this word division? What this word division means? If you break it down, it's division. It's two different visions. And that's what conflict is. Because one person sees it this way, and another person sees it that way. And since we are not all the same, we're going to, at times in our life, we're going to have some conflict. And since conflict is inevitable, you better learn some conflict resolution. Because if you don't learn to resolve conflict, your life is going to be miserable. It's going to be miserable. You don't believe that? The Bible says this. I don't even have these up there, but I do want to read this. Better, Proverbs 17 and 1. Can you put that up there, Proverbs 17 and 1? Better is a dry morsel and quietness with it than a house full of feasting with strife. And all God's people said, amen. Amen to that. Amen to that. And so you're going to have to learn to work at conflict resolution at your workplace, in your marriage. And let me say something, couples that are married. There is nothing in Scripture that gives you the right to get a divorce because of irreconcilable differences. Me and my wife had irreconcilable differences the day we met. And 
And we still don't see eye to eye on everything. You're going to always have differences. Your children are not going to always agree on everything. And so when you come up with these differences, here's a practical thing, okay, that you can do. If you go to Matthew chapter 5, back to where our Beatitudes are, if you go down to verse 23, I want to look at this for a second. Verse 23. Now, in, in, in verse 23, Jesus, and I'm, I'm going to try to hurry. Man, I'm running out of time. I got I to gotta get this flight quicker next time. Speed up. Verse 23. Jesus, now he's just warning about harboring anger, okay, against our brothers. Don't harbor anger against your brothers, what he's talking about here. And he says this. If you are presenting your offering at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you. Now, listen, what do we do first and foremost if we're going to have confident resolution? First and foremost, we got to do this. We got to diagnose the issue. Okay, you got to diagnose the issue. You got to say, all right, this is the issue. I've got this issue with this person. I'll never forget when 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 I first started preaching, when I first started pastoring here. It was on a Sunday night, and uh, believe it or not, I mean, I, I notice things, okay? I, I notice that people get up and go out. I, I notice these things, okay? I try not to bother me for the most part. But anyway, I, I was preaching, and I, I said something. And there's a, I promise you, there's a lot of times when I say something, I get home, I'm like, man, why'd you say that? And if, if anybody's ever taught, you know what I'm talking about. If you spoke in public, you, sometimes you go home and say, man, I, I, I hope that didn't come off wrong. And so I said something. And as soon as I said something, this couple got up, walked out. I, I can't just let it go. It's right there in my mind. And the whole time I'm still preaching, my mind is telling me, I'm having a conversation in my mind going, man, you really messed this up. Why'd you say that? They probably heard it wrong. So you said it wrong. So I just trudged my way through it, Okay. Got through, and I, sit, I, I closed the church down after it was over. I sat in my car, and I was like, oh, man, I really messed it up. Well, I got a phone call that next day. That phone call. And the phone call, the person, it was, that, it was that man. He said, hey, I want you to know that when you was preaching last night, My wife got sick, and so we had to get up and leave. (laughs) See, the whole time, I thought there was an issue there. I didn't discern that it was just something else. And how many times do we give, say to ourselves, can you believe that look they gave me just now? I promise you, they're not thinking about you most of the time. They're thinking about something else. But if you're going to have confident resolution, you've got to learn to deal with the, you've got to learn to discern the issue first and foremost. And he says this, next verse, or continue on there. He says, leave your gift and offering and go and be reconciled to your brother. In other words, he says you've got to diagnose the issue, then you've got to deal with it. In other words, He says, don't stay there at the altar. He said, no, you go and be reconciled.
to your brother. Do you know the reason why we're supposed to go and make the first step? Because that's what our Father did. When we were sinners, God sent Jesus to us. He took the first step. We should take the first step. Notice he doesn't say if you got something against your brother. He said if your brother's got something against you. In other words, you may not have anything against him, but if they got something against you, you should go and say, listen, I want to re- try to reconcile this. I understand there's times you can't reconcile. I understand sometimes people just will not reconcile with you. But that don't absolve you of doing what you're supposed to do. So you diagnose the issue. You deal it. You deal with it. Then he says the next thing you do, then you come back and you give your gift to the altar. In other words, you've got to, once you do what you're supposed to do, you come back and you've got to give it to God and say, God, I give it to you. You depend on God, depend on the Holy Spirit to fix the situation. Depend on God. And then lastly is this. Come on, be playing. I would say not only must you diagnose it, not only must you deal with it, not only must you depend on God, but he says here, verse 25, make friends quickly. In other words, don't procrastinate. Do you realize the longer you let something brew, the harder it is to deal with it. Listen, church, if every single one of us in our marriages would just be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry, how much better would it be now, I know this is, this is just practical stuff. And that's what Christian living is. It's very practical. It's saying, I want to be a peacemaker. I want to live, lead a quiet life. That's the good life. That's the blessed life. That's the life that says, I am satisfied. I am sufficient. Nothing else depends on my joy. Again, Jesus says here, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. 